Hello, welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter AudioCast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is Volume 14, Issue Number 5. This happens to correspond with the week of January 15, 2024. Let's start with the free thoughts. This is a episode about sugar. So the simple answer for me is that excess sugar and flour in our diets is really primary cause number one of all the disease and death that we're seeing pretty much in our lifetime as it relates to the big five problems, cancer, cardiovascular disease, blood pressure issues, diabetes, and obesity. So that's a big one. And as things become routine and familiar, for me, this is another one. Buck outside of those walls and find the new. Find the spark of the self. Find the soul-shaking energy that ignites the next stage of greatness for who you are. Don't rest on the laurels of the day. Keep pushing. Keep being different. Keep being special because you only get one shot at this. All right. Song of the week. Three Libras by a perfect circle. It's a good old favorite. All right. Sugar, immune health, and two studies. Let's start right out of the gate with two studies. The first one. Here's the abstract from the European Clinical Journal of Nutrition. Quote, milk contributes with saturated fat, but randomized controlled trials on the effects of dairy on the risk of type 2 diabetes where dairy is given as a whole food are scarce. The objective of our study was to investigate the long-term effects of semi-skim milk on insulin sensitivity and further to compare milk with sugar-sweetened soft drinks as a comparator. A secondary analysis on a six-month RCT with 60 overweight and obese subjects randomly assigned to one liter per day of either milk, sugar-sweetened beverages, a non-calorie soft drink, or water was conducted. Insulin sensitivity was evaluated by oral glucose tolerance test and plasma-free fatty acids. Second, fasting blood lipids, blood pressure, and concentration of plasminogen activator inhibitor 1 were assessed. There were no differences between milk, uh, sugar-sweetened beverages, non-calorie sweetened beverages, and water when it comes to insulin sensitivity as assessed by the oral glucose tolerance test. Sugar-sweetened beverages increased total cholesterol compared to non-caloric sweetened beverages, and triacylglycerol compared to non-sugar-sweetened beverages and water. None of the other parameters differed significantly between the groups. In conclusion, there were no differences in effect between intake of milk, sugar-sweetened beverages, non-caloric sweetened beverages, and water for a six-month trial on risk markers of type 2 diabetes in overweight and obese adults. As a secondary analysis, these results need confirmation in future studies. End quote, Engel et al., 2018. All right, let's look at number two from the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. So first study in Europe, second study in our country. Quote, the consumption of sucrose-sweetened soft drinks, SSDs, has been associated with obesity, the metabolic syndrome, and cardiovascular disease disorders in observational and short-term interventional studies. Too few long-term intervention studies in humans have examined the effects of soft drinks. We compared the effects of sugar-sweetened drinks with those of isocaloric milk and non-caloric soft drinks on changes in total fat mass, ectopic fat deposition in liver and in muscle, Overweight subjects, of which there were 47, were randomly assigned to four different test drinks, one liter per day for six months. They had sugar-sweetened soft drinks, isocaloric semi-skim milk, 
aspartame sweetened diet cola and water. The amount of intrahepatic fat and intramyocellular fat was measured with magnetic resonance spectroscopy. Other endpoints were fat mass, fat distribution, and metabolic risk factors. The relative changes between baseline and the end of the six-month intervention were significantly higher in the regular COLA group than in the three other groups for liver fat, skeletal fat mass, visceral fat, blood triglycerides, and total cholesterol. Total fat mass was not significantly different between the four beverage groups. Milk and diet cola reduced systolic blood pressure by 10 to 15% compared with regular cola. Otherwise, diet cola had similar effects of those of water. Conclusion. Daily intake of sugar, sweet, and soft drinks for six months increases ectopic fat accumulation and lipids compared with milk, diet cola, and water. Thus, daily intake of sugar, sweet, and soft drinks is likely to enhance the risk of cardiovascular disease and metabolic disease. End quote. Maersk et al., 2012. So what do these studies mean? First, there was no difference between milk, sugar-sweetened beverages, and sugar-free, non-caloric sweetened beverages and water on type 2 diabetes development over six months in the first study. This says nothing about what happens over multi-years in this situation and the development of diabetes, but it also doesn't say that it will. However, the sugar-sweet and soft drink group had significant increases in triglycerides and cholesterol. Why? Because sugar-sweet and soft drinks triggers the fructose metabolism pathway in the liver that leads to all the changes that are metabolically unhealthy. So we have a mechanistic plausibility as to the why. And we know increases in triglycerides and cholesterol over time are not in keeping with good health. Study number two noted significant liver fat and muscle fat and abnormal lipids for the sugar-sweetened beverage group. These findings are reflective of the fact that fructose is driving metabolic syndrome type changes that over time are very detrimental to our health. This is where Dr. Rick Johnson's work is pivotal back in the podcast that I've done with him. It is the volume of fructose that hits the liver via the portal vein from the small intestine that is the key to the fat deposition. The route that is the worst for the body is liquid fructose as soda, sweet tea, or juice, etc. Fructose delivered as fruit in normal volumes, protects the liver from the fructose onslaught as the fiber in the fruit and the associated foods slow down digestion, allowing enzymes in the intestine to break down much of the fructose, sparing the liver. This is key. Limiting the volume of fructose that reaches the liver is critical. Thus, these two beverages studies are important from that perspective. Keeping the liver safe is key. Let's look at sugar metabolism a little bit deeper. What is happening when sugar level rises high in the blood post-meal? What is the immune system's view of excess sugar? Any amount of time that blood sugar remains high, i.e. more than 180 milligrams per deciliter, proteins will start to cross-link and get permanently bound to sugar, producing an advanced glycosylated end product, which is massively stimulating to inflammation via the immune system. They bind to receptors called rages, which trigger nuclear factor kappa B, or an F-kappa B, which is a main potent inflamed uh, inducer, leading to lots of reactive oxygen species, which are directly damaging to local cells. So you have a direct link between sugar consumption and damage to cells. NF-kappa B is also a chemical activated in chronic stress. You see a pattern here. Oh, and by the way, this process also makes antibodies, which are proteins more sticky and more prone to immune activation, leading to possible self-tissue responses, which generate autoimmunity. Sugar is also burned in the mitochondria of cells, especially the muscle cell, for energy. The byproduct of this chemical reaction that burns glucose into ATP, or our preferred action energy, is also a reactive oxygen species. 
Let's go a little deeper in the mitochondrion, in the hyperglycemic and insulin resistance state. Damage and dysfunction in the skeletal muscle mitochondria is a major precursor to all patients that have insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes mellitus. When mitochondria burn fat or glucose as fuel, the burn is performed in the electron transport chain that produces ATP and liberates water and superoxide or hydrogen peroxide. These oxygen-based molecules are incredibly damaging to the actual mitochondria in excess. Again, this is only an issue in excess, not at baseline normal historical diets. From the journal Endocrinology, we see the following. A decrement in mitochondrial number and electron transport chain activity in type 2 diabetes in obese individuals compared to lean volunteers is noted. A deterioration of mitochondrial function skeletal muscle obtained from obese type 2 diabetic subjects. Non-responsiveness of muscle mitochondria ATP production to high-dose insulin infusion in type 2 diabetic subjects suggesting impaired response to insulin and reduced mitochondrial function. A modest decrease in mitochondrial ATP synthesis rates in non-obese patients with type 2 diabetes and non-diabetic older individuals when compared to non-diabetic young groups under fasting conditions and after insulin stimulation. Lower mitochondrial function caused by a reduction of basal ADP stimulated and intrinsic mitochondrial respiratory capacity in type 2 diabetic subjects when compared with age and BMI match control subjects. Excess mitochondrial ROS, or reactive oxygen species production, and reduced mitochondrial function are enhanced by elevated fatty acids and or hyperglycemia. Mitochondrial reactive oxygen species attenuate insulin action in adipocytes, myotubes, and mice, and abolish insulin-stimulated GLUT4 translocation in 3T3L1 cells by interfering with insulin-mediated redistribution of IRS1 and PI3 kinase. End quote. Sangwung, S-A-N-G-W-N-G, et al., 2020, from the Journal of Chronology. The mitochondria and the metabolism within is turning out to be supercritical to understanding and preventing diseases like metabolic syndrome. In order to support the struggling mitochondria under attack by the high sugar intake, one should look to antioxidants. The primary oxidant, antioxidant in the body to deal with the reactive oxygen species is the chemical glutathione. Glutathione is necessary for dealing with all xenobiotics, including air pollution, water, and food pollution, and just chemicals in general. A highly taxed glutathione system is a net inflammation generator, as the overwhelmed mechanism cannot clear all irritants leading to mitochondrial and cellular dysfunction. Thus, any decision, lifestyle-wise, that drives up blood glucose levels will cause immune activation that is unhealthy over time. However, toxin exposure via food, air, or water also taxes the system. It is truly a multi-pronged reality. You could support this system via diet primarily, but also through supplements like N-acetylcysteine, liposomal glutathione, vitamin C, polyphenolic blends like OPCs, oligomeric proanthocyanidins. While I'm not going to take a deep dive here, the microbiome is massively at play here as well. The intestinal bacteria all play a contributory role in the glucose metabolism and human health. Diet is the most important influencer of the microbiome next to antibiotics. The influence of fiber is massive. There are supplements that are showing benefits here as well. Berberine is an herb that modulates the microbiome and offers better glucose metabolism action presumed through alterations in the microbiome. Probiotics like Pendulum's glucose control are loaded with acromantia and other bacteria that modulate glucose metabolism. Data has noted significant drops in hemoglobin A1Cs in subjects over six months. Ultimately, 
The take-home point remains food first always, followed by exercise, followed by stress and toxin exposure reduction, and then followed by targeted supplements based on dysfunction and need. So resolution takes time and effort. For me, it's pretty simple. Avoid sugar and non-sugared sweetened beverages as much as possible. The liquids are the killer. Be resolute and live. Part two, antibiotic resistance. Important information for all. Antibiotic resistance is a continually evolving problem in medicine and society. Historically, significant antibiotic resistance was confined to the hospitals and intensive care units. But over the past few decades, these bacterial resistance issues have entered the everyday world with the likes of methicillin-resistant Staph aureus being everywhere. In primary care, urgent, and emergent care clinics, we are seeing children every day with MRSA, abscesses, or skin infections. Fortunately, we still have two good oral antibiotics to fight this troublemaker. Hypothetically, though, these antibiotics could start to fail. Then what? Death is the outcome for many untreatable serious infections of the skin? Oh boy, that's a mess. Why would this problem exist in the first place? Well, simply, we have abused antibiotics in the patient care world and in agricultural world for decades by overtreating viral disease as bacteria and using them in animals' feed to help keep animals healthy and grow. There has been an active push to reduce antibiotic usage. Unfortunately, I still see way too many patients coming in for the follow-up appointment after being on vacation or out of town with 10-day courses of antibiotics for two days of viral cold symptoms. Statistics show that greater than 50% of the prescriptions written are done so incorrectly. The use of antibiotics indiscriminately is a danger to everyone over time by allowing bacteria to spend time with these drugs learning how to evade them. From an excellent review, quote, as early as 1945, Sir Alexander Fleming, founder of penicillin, raised the alarm regarding the antibiotic overuse when he warned that the public will demand the drug and then will begin an era of abuses. The overuse of antibiotics clearly drives the evolution of resistance. Epidemiological studies have demonstrated direct relationship between antibiotic consumption and the emergence of dissemination of resistant bacterial strains. In bacteria, genes can be inherited from relatives or can be acquired from non-relatives on mobile genetic elements such as plasmids. This horizontal gene transfer can allow antibiotic resistance to be transferred among different species of bacteria. Resistance can also occur spontaneously through mutation. Antibiotics remove drug-sensitive competitors, leaving resistant bacteria behind to reproduce as a result of natural selection. Despite warnings regarding Overuse antibiotics are overprescribed worldwide. End quote. Ventola, 2015. We are using antibiotics like water in the animal and food industrial complex, as stated. We use more antibiotics in animals than in all Americans combined. Why? To enhance growth and control infections that stem from living in cesspools of close quartered CAFU environments. This practice is far from coming to an end, unfortunately. According to the CDC, because of the link between antibiotic use and food, Producing animals and the occurrence of antibiotic resistance infections in humans, antibiotics should only be used in animals with veterinary oversight and only to treat and manage infectious disease, not to promote growth. A further problem comes from the economics of pharmaceutical development as written here. Antibiotic development is no longer considered to be an economically wise investment for pharmaceutical companies when they can spend their money on looking at things like Ozempic. Don't get me started. Because antibiotics are used for relatively short periods and are often curative, antibiotics are not as profitable as drugs that treat chronic conditions such as diabetes, 
psychiatric disorders, asthma, gastroesophageal reflux. A cost-benefit analysis of the Office of Health Economics in London calculated that the net present value of a new antibiotic is about $50 million, compared to approximately $1 billion for a drug used to treat neuromuscular disease. Because medicines for chronic conditions are more profitable, pharmaceutical companies prefer to invest in them. Again, from Ventola 2015. This is a fundamental problem for the federal government to tackle. As the economics of development and production wane, we need the powers that be to start supporting innovation and development at the research level funded by the NIH and the federal government. What are the cold hard facts, though? Over 2 million Americans become infected with resistant bacterial organisms yearly. The subsequent death rate is over 25,000. That's a lot of people. That is not a loved one, excuse me, that is a lot of loved ones to give up to a preventable issue. I am personally not comfortable with this for our society and especially not for my community. Who is at greatest risk? Patients with cancer, kidney disease, kidney diseases receiving dialysis, immune system defects, and those receiving major surgeries. This recipe this week by Chef Marc, Beef Bourguignon. Highly encourage you to get it and uh, look at the recipe on the Salisbury Pediatric website and then try it. It's great stuff. All right, as always, hug those kids. Have a great day. The information provided in this newsletter audio cast is for educational informational purposes only. It's not to be substituted for advice and or treatment by your provider or physician and other healthcare professional. And is not to be used to treat or diagnose a health issue. This newsletter audio cast does not constitute development of any kind of provider-patient relationship.